0: Good morning. hey isn't it good to be here and sing and be with the whole church family it's amazing. I love it. Um, we are going to be uh, in First Corinthians chapter five, verse one through thirteen again. This is our third week in this chapter, and we are going to be done after today. i don't promise Lord willing, we will be done after today uh, it's been so good. Um, I want to read uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. This is what it says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, the, this passage is a challenging passage, and we've, we've, I've reminded us that it is so common for churches and for Christians to read things in Scripture that just don't sit right with them, and they just go, I am not doing that. And it just, sometimes we can read things in the Bible that we just feel like, man, that just seems so unloving and so kind, and I can't, I just can't figure out how that could be the best thing to do. But one of the things that we know as Christians, and, and this is one of the reasons why it's so important to read the whole Bible, is that as you read the Bible, the whole thing, the Old and New Testament, and then you run across a passage like this and it's not out of the blue. We read it and we go, okay, I've heard a bunch of stories about what happens when people live in sin and how destructive that is, and I've seen how God has worked through people who are willing to confront and to intervene. You know, I think about the King David, you know, he's in sin. We look at the destruction and all the bad things that happened into his life because he wandered into sin. We think about Nathan. God gives Nathan a message, and he says, go talk to David. And Nathan goes and talks to David, and we see the blessing that comes out of that. And, and so when you take that as well as all the other stories in the Bible, and when you have that in your mind, And then you read this passage, it actually makes perfect sense. And even though it doesn't, even though it makes perfect sense, that doesn't mean that it's easy to do. That's one of the reasons that when I read 2 Corinthians, it's so encouraging and so helpful. Because you read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to read it in a moment, and Paul is just so decisive. He just says, Do this. And it's drastic, it is extreme. And you just think, Man, you know, how, how could he just be so hard? But then you read 2 Corinthians, and you find out how, what a grievous thing it was in his heart. How, he, how after he sent that letter, he regretted it, but he didn't regret it, but he regretted it. And it's like when you read how the Apostle Paul felt about doing this, it is so comforting. Because that's how you and I feel when we put this into practice with people that we love. It is heartbreaking. It is heart-wrenching. It is so hard to do but we do it because we're Christians. And the first thing we know about being a Christian is that a Christian understands that God is the creator of the world, He made the world, He is the ultimate authority, and whatever God says we do. In fact, you read the Bible, it describes Christians as slaves of Christ. So every Christian starts at the place where whatever God says, I will do. Um, That's the first thing. We submit to God's authority. The second thing that as you read the Bible that you understand is not only does God have authority, but God knows everything. Every time God tells anybody to do anything, it is the best thing to do. And there are one story after another that you would say, oh man, obeying God's not a good idea. But as you read the Bible, you realize that every time a person obeys God, that was the best thing to do. And every time a person disobeys God, that was not a good thing to do. And so we realize that God knows everything, so we trust him. We don't trust ourselves. We don't trust our own judgment. We don't, we don't take what God says and go, well, let me evaluate that and see if I think it's best. Like, if you read the Bible, you know whatever God says is Is true. He knows everything. The third thing is that God is a good God and He loves us. And everything that He tells us is for our best. That's the other thing you learn as you read Scripture. And so for us as Christians, we read the whole context of the Bible and then we read this passage. And as heartbreaking as it may be, we just say, No, I'm going to do what God says because He's my God, He's my Lord because he knows everything and because he has my best interests at heart. And so as we read this, uh, this could be shocking, but it's not um, because we read it in that context. One of the things that is also really important for us to do is to think about why God says the things that he says. And that's one of the things we're gonna consider um, this morning is why does God say when a person claims to be a Christian and lives a rebellious life that you are to remove them from the church. Why does God say that? It's helpful for us to think about it because we want to make sure we know what God's saying. Sometimes people think they're obeying Scripture and they do things that God has never said that they're supposed to do. And so we need to think carefully about what God says to make sure we're actually doing what God says. But also it helps us if we understand why God says the things that he says, it helps us wholeheartedly obey. Now, do we have to understand to obey? Like that is definitely not like one of the requirements of God, I'll do this when it makes sense to me. But isn't it easier to do the hard things that God says to do when it also makes sense to you? And so we wanna dig in and Paul's gonna explain um, so let's read this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person. From among you. Those are powerful words. And I think it's really important for us to understand, like that, that, that end section. Um, it, it would be easy. Like, I used to have this friend that, that when I was working in construction, I would always invite him to church. And he would always say, Oh, trust me, you don't want me to come to church. Man, I'm a bad person. If I came to church, lightning would strike. I can't go to that place. And, um, Man, what, a, what, a, what a, um, a misunderstanding in some sense of what the church is. No, sinners should come to church. There are Christians who, when they fall into sin, and this is a common thing. What happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned? What'd they do? They hid. And how often do Christians who fall into sin Hide. Somebody blows it. Somebody commits some terrible sin in their life and church is the last place that they want to go. That's a a natural reaction to sin and that is not how any Christian should respond to sin. If you blow it, (laughs) if you sin, man, you should go straight to church. You need to be around other believers who will love you. You need to know what the Bible says about God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. Nobody should ever get kicked out of a church. Nobody should ever be told that they can't come to church because they've committed some sin. Uh, the, church is open to the, the church's doors are open to everybody, including sinners, and if we didn't let sinners in here, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to be here, and neither would any of you. But there's a difference when a person says, I'm a Christian, and then lives in open rebellion against God. And what this passage says is that anybody who does that, don't associate with them, don't allow them to come to church. So let's dig in here and let's think through a few of these reasons. Here's the first one, is that a lack of repentance from sin corrupts other believers. So that's one of the things that we need to understand is that, that our, our first, the first and foremost thing in our mind when we address sin in another person's life is their well-being, their best interests. The number one reason that people don't confront people in sin, that people don't step in and address things. When you you have a friend that you find out just decides they're going to live some sinful lifestyle, when when you know somebody who they're considering a sinful choice and they've just decided, I'm going to do this, the number one reason why people don't address it, when, when people's kids are struggling with sin. They're failing to live the way God tells them to live. The number one reason that people don't address it is because they are self-centered, they are selfish, they love themselves more than they love other people. And people just think, hey, if I confront this issue with my kid, my kid will never speak to me again. That will hurt my heart. I cannot bring myself to do that. I cannot suffer the loss of a relationship with my kid. If I talk to my friend, man, I've seen the way they respond when other people address sin issues in their life. They are going to unload on me. They are going to be angry with me. I'm going to have this conversation with them, and it's going to go poorly, and I am going to feel terrible afterwards. I would way rather feel like a nice person. And here's the funny thing. Everybody defines that as love. I wanna be loving. I don't wanna say something that will hurt somebody's feelings when the truth is, that is not love, that is selfishness. And so when we address sin in somebody's life, it is because we love them, it is because, like when you address sin issues in your kids' lives, it is because you love them more than you love your personal comfort. You are willing to do things that will make them mad because it is in their best interests. And one of the things we find out is this church got this letter from Paul. They did what he told them to do, and it turned out good for the person that they kicked out. He came back. That's 2 Corinthians. This worked well. There are so many moms and dads. There are so many churches. There are so many Christians who suffer a destructive life because nobody cares enough to hurt their feelings. Nobody cares enough to tell them what God said they were supposed to tell them. So we address sin for the well-being of somebody else. But now Paul's going to talk into some of the other reasons. And and the other one is because a lack of repentance from sin is corrupting to the body of Christ. Let's read this, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. They're so prideful and arrogant. God, you told us what to do, but no, we're smarter than you. We're going to do it our way. And he just says, No, your boasting is not good. They ignored what Jesus said in Matthew 18. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. So, you, you know what leaven is? It's yeast. I'm not a bread maker. We have some bread makers in this church. I go to a life group with one of them, and I hang out with some other people who make bread, and they have like some leaven, you know, like sourdough, or you get some sourdough, and you get leaven that's yeast, and they put it in bread, and, and you could take like this loaf, loaf of bread, take a little bit of leaven, stick it in there, and it impacts the whole lump. What, what he's saying, what Paul is saying here, is that a little bit of leaven, a little sin, it spreads, it influences and it affects other people. We address sin because the people who are sinning need it, but we address sin because the whole body of Christ needs it. Everybody needs it. You know, um, Paul's just saying in this place that sin is p- p- it pollutes. You know, I never took my kids out of public school, so I put them in public school. I helped out in classes. I volunteered. And it was a sinful environment. There was a lot of things that were said in that environment that were bad. And so when I found out that they were going to be doing sex education, and they'd send a letter home. By the way, they don't do this anymore, but they used to send a letter home to the parents saying, we're going to cover sex education things. If you don't want your kids in, then don't have them go to school. I never kept my kids home from that day. I always found out what they were going to teach, and I would sit down with my kids um, before that day, and I would just say, hey, guys. Tomorrow when you go to school or in two days when you go to school, I want to tell you what they're going to teach you. This is all the stuff they're going to tell you. This is what God says about this. This is why what they're saying is harmful and damaging. And here's the thing. Not only are you going to hear this, but everybody in class is going to hear this. Now think about how hearing this is going to impact your class and your culture and the kinds of things that are going to be happening in the kids' lives that are your age. Well, this is what God says is true, and this is how you should interact with your friends about these things. But I want to just say this. It's one thing to associate and be around sinful people in the world. It's a different thing when in the church we take a person who says, I'm a Christian, who lives in rebellion against God, and we ignore that. We don't address it. We don't don't deal with it that actually becomes an influence, and it sends a message to everybody in the church. It becomes a temptation to people in the church. You think about how destructive sexual immorality is. So we're in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Next week, we're gonna talk about lawsuits, and then after that, we're gonna talk about sexual immorality, and actually what the Bible says about that specifically. And then in chapter seven, we'll talk about marriage and how all of these things impact marriage. But one of the things that we recognize about sexual immorality is it's destructive. It destroys, it harms. But does it always seem that way? Have you ever looked at somebody living a sexually immoral life and just thought to yourself, kind of seems like they're having a lot of fun? This doesn't actually seem like a terrible thing for them. It looks pretty inviting. And what ends up happening is sometimes when we take sin and we leave it unaddressed, it seems okay. Think about Eli's kids, right? Um, Eli's kids are priests. They're sleeping with the women uh, in the tent of meeting. So people's wives are going to make their sacrifices and the priests are sleeping with them. And this is going on. It's going on and on and on. You think there was ever somebody who was like looking at his neighbor's wife and coveting his neighbor's wife and then he finds out that the priests are sleeping with his neighbor's wife and he sees nothing happening to them? You think there was ever anybody who thought, you know, that kind of seems fun. That kind of seems like a good idea. The Bible talks about how this sin is terrible and destructive, but when I look over there, it doesn't seem too destructive. It doesn't seem too terrible. It kind of seems like a cool thing. You think anybody had that? Um, image in mind. Now, God was being gracious and merciful, and he had a purpose in allowing that. But eventually, people look at these two, these two priests who God just kills. And I think looking back, you can go, okay, maybe that wasn't so fun and such a good idea. But unaddressed sin in the moment cannot seem so bad. And so as a church... When we ignore that in a person's life, it is bad for that person, but it is bad for everyone else. And the Bible tells us, don't even associate. Romans 16, 17 says, I I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. I'll never forget sitting around youth group in a small group discussion. Have you ever been in a small group and had people share things and you just think to yourself, what that person just said is really wrong, really damaging, really harmful, but it kind of sounded good. So I remember I'm sitting around with these teenagers And this one kid is just saying, I'm really struggling at home with my parents. They're really coming down on me about this thing. And they're coming down on me about that thing. And this other kid says, yeah, I'm going to tell you what your problem is. Like you're doing all these really little minor things. And your parents are like, they're smothering you. You need to kind of push out the boundaries. So let me just tell you, start doing this. Start doing this start doing this. And he starts listing off these really significant sins. And he says, you do that. You push the boundaries out and then you can take a step back. And these things that your parents are getting on your case for, they won't even be talking about that. They'll just be glad you're not doing these other things. Youth group advice. You send your kids to youth group and to their small group, that's what you want them to hear, right? And sometimes people living a life of sin you know, the Bible talks about false teachers. It says they deceive and they are being deceived. People who are buying into a sinful life sometimes can make a really good argument for it. And when you leave people in church who are doing that, who are not brokenhearted, who are not repenting, that kind of thing spreads. And, and we can start to look at it and we can start to see it. And Satan can use that to be destructive. Um, on the same token, when we deal with, this, with things correctly, it puts things in the right perspective. I had a friend who's a substitute teacher in kind of a really rough area. And uh, schools were out of control. Uh, the classes were out of control. This was before COVID, uh, when teachers actually had support. Nowadays, it's a nightmare. But um, he would go into a class, and the first he told me, Raj, when I go to class, the very first thing I do is I kick someone out. He would go to the front of the class, and he would say, um, could everybody please sit down and stop talking? Say in a real calm, nice voice. And somebody would say, hey, Joe, what'd you do last week? And he'd say, can you come up here? He'd give him a referral, kick him out of the class. And in his school, if a teacher kicked somebody out, that kid was suspended from school the next day. And then the classes that were normally totally out of control, every kid like perked up, looked like, wait, wait, what just happened? He got kicked out, what did he get kicked out for? And for the rest of the day and for the rest of the week and the rest of the time that he was teaching in that class, his class was controllable. People listened to him. They did what they were supposed to do because he kicked somebody out immediately and he sent a message. And often we don't do that. You know, Proverbs 29.1 says, he who is often reproved and yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken without remedy. But what happens... When a person just lives in sin and they're addressed and they're confronted and they ignore it and it kind of seems like it's no big deal. People are deceived by that. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. You need to think about that for yourself. Now, when it goes on in this passage, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's uh, talking about the leaven. And this is this is a celebration of the Passover, and he makes a reference to the Lord's Supper, and it's the Lord's Supper, it's fellowship in the body of Christ, and we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is what happened to the Passover, um, and so we celebrate that. And what Paul's saying is, you are unleavened, and what we should understand from this is leaven in this passage, not always, but in this passage, it represents sin. And how sin is an influence. And the apostle says, you are an unleavened bunch. You are an unleavened group. What that means is that sin is not in you. Sin has been removed. And Christ is our Passover lamb. You know, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, in Christ you are a new creature. Old things have passed away, new things have come. When you become a Christian, sin goes out of your life. You are spiritually transformed. That doesn't mean you don't struggle with sin or that you never sin. But you have a heart. That is no longer a slave to sin. Unbelievers can't stop sinning. If they stop one sin, they just trade that for a different sin. But as Christians, you are not a slave to sin. You are a new creature. Ephesians chapter 2, 8, and 9 talks about how we are not saved by our works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one may boast. And we always stop there. You know what verse 10 says? For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The same grace of God that saves you changes you. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin And live to righteousness. It is a fact that if you are a Christian, you are unleavened. And as Christians, we live that out. We live out righteousness. Not perfectly. You know, the Apostle Paul talks about his struggle with sin in Romans 7, right? He says, I find myself doing the things that I hate. See, that's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. When a Christian sins, he hates it. I remember uh, going home when I was a kid. After I, right after I became a Christian, I was 17, and I used to have a terrible relationship with my parents. I'd always yell at them. And I just w- remember praying. My house was very volatile. And I remember just praying, Lord, help me not to yell at my parents. Help me not to yell at my parents. Help me not to yell at my parents. I'd be in the car driving home. Lord, help me not to yell at my parents. I'd walk through the door. Within 15 minutes, I was yelling at them about something. And then I would confess that, and I would say, God, please forgive me for that. Help me not to do that anymore. And I would go find my parents, and I'd say, I'm really sorry that I talked to you this way. They'd done something that upset me. But you want to know something? A year later, I was not still yelling at my parents because I hated that. I was trying to discipline myself to get that out of my life, and my life was changing. And people who hate sin don't continue sinning in the same way. God transforms people. Uh, I've talked to many people who become Christians. In fact, a friend of mine, uh, he he was an elder in my last church, and he talked about how he got saved, and it was because somebody shared the gospel with his wife, and they had this really hard, difficult marriage, and she became a Christian, and over a year and a half, he saw the transformation in her life. It's like, man, this woman that I could never get along with now i get along with her and that's actually what god used to save him that's what happens when people are christians you know the bible says it this way in luke for no good tree bears bad fruit nor again does a bear bad tree bear good fruit for each tree is known by its fruits um god cares about sin and it spreads And it's not something that we should just ignore. Here's a second thing. A lack of repentance from sin pollutes worship. Have you thought about that? Ever read Isaiah chapter 6? So God gives Isaiah this vision of his throne room, and Isaiah comes into the throne room, and when Isaiah sees God, he says, Woe is me, for I am a sinful man. When we think about who God is, when we think about his presence that is a terrifying thing for a sinful person to be in God's presence. When you come to church and you have unrepentant sin in your life, and you're singing and you're worshiping, it pollutes worship. It puts a block between you and God. Psalm sixty-six, eighteen. 18, it says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Have you ever thought about that? You're living in sin, right? You're intentionally disregarding what God says. And then you say, oh, Lord, please help me not to get fired. Lord, help me to get a raise. Lord, help this to happen. Lord, I really want this new car. Lord, I really want this. Have you ever thought about the fact that the Bible says that when you make a place for sin in your life, God doesn't hear you? You know, people are like, man, God never answers my prayer. Yeah, you're living in rebellion. Psalm sixty-six, eighteen. 18, God doesn't listen to you. It harms your relationship with God. That's what it says in verse 7, for Christ our passover lamb has been sacrificed let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven the leaven of malice and evil but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth so the passover lamb you know what that is by the way you cannot understand the old the new testament if you don't know the old testament so many people, we're, we're New Testament people. We're under the New Covenant. Just read the New Testament. Just preach through the New Testament. Yeah, you can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. Passover lamb, leaven, like what is all this stuff? So this was when God destroyed Egypt. You guys know the story of the Passover? I'll give you a quick summary of it. God tells Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. He says, I, and, and then I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. And then he says, but not for a long time because Canaan's super wicked, but their wickedness isn't complete. I need to give them time to repent. Did you know that? That happens before Israel goes to Egypt. And then God sticks Israel in Egypt. And you know the whole story of Joseph and God makes Israel grow. And then Egypt starts oppressing and persecuting God's chosen people. And then God says it's time for Israel to come out. And then the Exodus happens. And everybody wonders why, after Israel left Egypt, why did they go kill every man, woman, and child in Canaan? Well, it's because God said, I'm going to give them time to repent. And then when they didn't repent, he sent them to punish Canaan. And so Israel wiped everybody out as an expression of God's judgment. But God's judgment was also poured out on Egypt. And there's all these plagues and there's all those things. And the Passover was when God says, okay, I'm finally taking you out. And so this is what you're going to do. I'm going to send a plague on everybody in Egypt. I'm coming. The angel of death is coming. And the firstborn of every household is going to die. From Pharaoh to the person in the prison to every animal in the field, the firstborn's going to die. And guess who that included? It included Israel. So when God's going to pass over Egypt, He's killing all the Egyptian firstborn. He's killing all the the animals in the land. And he's killing all the Israelite firstborn children, too, because he's going to judge sin. And then he tells Israel there's a way out of having your firstborn killed. And that is that you take a lamb that is perfect and you sacrifice that lamb. And for a week, you get all the leaven out of your house. And you're going to celebrate this Passover, and when you kill this lamb, you put some of the blood on the doorpost and on the mantle, and if you do that, I will pass over your house. That's where Passover comes from. And that's what happens, and that's what Israel celebrated, was that because of this lamb, their firstborn child didn't die which is part of what makes sense about John seeing Jesus and saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so this whole thing of Passover is that because of Jesus, we're not punished for our sins, which is what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, right, which replaced Passover. Because Jesus died on the cross, we're not punished for our sins. And and often people think, oh, well, then that means sin doesn't matter. No, this whole Passover reminds us that God is a holy God and that judgment is coming apart from Christ. Christians don't disregard sin. The celebration of the Lord's Supper doesn't make us passive about sin. It reminds us how serious sin is. And, you know, there are so many people as they think about worship and as they think about sinning, uh, as they think about sin, as they think about worship, as they think about those things, is that, that worship is an external thing instead of realizing, no, worship is my heart. God sees what's in my heart, what's on the outside, doesn't matter. God cares what is on the inside. And that was one of the big problems of the nation of Israel. In fact, this is what um, God says to Israel in Amos chapter 5, verse 21. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. <laughs> Think about that. You know, it's it's interesting. There are people who, when they're trying to find worship for church, and I've gone to uh, worship uh, seminars. I've gone to Big conferences where they have uh, musicians come and lead worship. And you want to know what they do often? When they want to lead worship, they go down to the local area and they go hire some professional musicians to come play instruments. And these professional musicians, they're awesome, they're amazing, the music is so good. They are not Christians, they're people living their life in rebellion against God. You know what happens often in churches when you're trying to find people to lead worship? Who can sing on key? Who has an amazingly inspiring voice? Who's a great musician? Who can do the mechanics of worship well? That's who we want. You know, that's like a distant second place from the first thing we look for. Who has a heart for God? Who loves the Lord? Who is honoring God in their life? There are churches who pay people to lead worship, and it's because they're looking at the outside. And we don't want people. I, I was at this one church where the person leading in worship sang off key. It was so bad, and I felt so embarrassed for the person on stage. And it was a distraction from worship. That is not what we are shooting for. But I will tell you this. Give me Celine Dion or somebody who can't carry a tune. And if the only person in that group that's spiritually faithful is the one who can't carry a tune, stick them up front. Because I want to be led in worship by a person who in their heart is genuinely worshiping God. Have you ever wondered how is it that pastors that are so amazingly gifted in speaking, have these massive crowds of people. And then you find out that they've been visiting prostitutes and they've been doing all these kinds of things. There's been all this sin under the surface. Or somebody who can pull together a great worship team. And man, it just functions and it's so good and it sounds so good and they have such amazing talent. And then you find out that there's between them and the Lord this huge separation. They're just living a life of rebellion and sin. How does that happen? You ever wonder how people do that? It's because they lose sight of what God is saying here sin pollutes worship. And the number one thing on a worship team, yes they need to pick songs. Yes they need to practice the music things. But you want to know what matters more than any of that is how spiritually faithful are the people on the worship team. And that's what should be happening is we're involved in each other's life. We know what's going on in each other's life. If somebody on the team's in sin, everybody's praying for them. Everybody's reaching out. And that's our number one concern. That's our number one concern with every leader. It's not their external talent. It's their heart for the Lord. And we're always keeping track of each other and helping each other. I remember I had this youth leader. And uh, he handled things in a way that was not my favorite. And every once in a while I'd schedule him to teach for me. So I was always trying to raise up people and teach other people to teach. And he would call me on Sunday morning. The day he was scheduled to teach, and he would say, Roger, I hate to do this to you, but can you just preach for me last minute? He said, I got in a fight with my wife, and I just don't feel like after having this kind of relational difficulty with my wife that I can stand up and tell other people that they need to obey the Bible. When when in my own life, I have issues. Not once did I say to him, no, you need to teach anyway. I prayed for him, I encouraged him, and then I showed up and I taught for him. And one of the things that I encouraged him with is 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you got in a fight with your wife, tell her you're sorry. And then get up here and teach. Like, you don't need to dump this on me last minute. But I will tell you this. I was very thankful and I was very appreciative that in his heart, he cared about pleasing the Lord more than other things. And I wish more leaders were like that. More people should do that. And if a person has a sin issue that they're struggling with, sometimes they need to step out of the things that they're doing. Sin pollutes worship, and especially as it relates to the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul specifically told this Corinthian church, he specifically told them in chapter 11 that there were people who were sick because they were showing up and taking the Lord's Supper with unrepentant sin in their life. He told them that God was killing some of them, like people looked around the church and they're like, wow, Joe was young. He seemed like he was healthy. And then, like, after the Lord's Supper, the guy just ups and dies. That was weird. And they started noticing things like that. And Paul says, hey, just for clarification purposes, God kills people or it's killing people in your church because you're um, taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. Everybody's like, oh, no, that was God in the Old Testament. He's not like that in the New Testament. Really? <laughs> First Corinthians 11 is in the New Testament. And God is just saying, um, I don't care about all your music and your offerings. I want a heart that loves me. And So he's telling them that part of the reason you need to address sin is because sin pollutes worship. Here's a third thing. Professing believers who hardheartedly. Refuse to repent. Must be avoided. Paul says stay away from them. Let me read this to you. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Um, One of the things you find out is that 1 Corinthians was not the first letter to the Corinthians. There was a different one. And he writes to them. And here in 1 Corinthians, he's referring to that first one. This is a side note. Um, Whatever that letter was was not meant for the entire church. You know, some people are like, oh no, God wrote this letter just to that church. It doesn't really apply to me. God wrote the Old Testament to the, old tes- uh, to the Jews. It doesn't apply to me. No. Anything that doesn't apply to us isn't in the Bible. And this is an example of that. Paul wrote some things that God didn't want for the universal church. He just wanted it for the Corinthian church. The letter's lost. It's not in the Bible. If we found it, we wouldn't add it to the Bible. Hey, we'd have fun reading it, but we wouldn't add it. Because the Bible includes exactly what God wants for everyone. But anyway, he writes in this letter, don't associate with sexually immoral people. And then he clarifies it. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world world, or the greedy or swindlers, or idolaters, since then you'd need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. So if a person calls themselves a Christian, that is a unique situation. Now think about that. Why, when a non-Christian lives in rebellion against God, is that different than when a Christian lives in rebellion against God? Why is that different? It's different because we know that's wrong. We know these people, anybody who's not a Christian is verbally saying, I'm in rebellion against God. So it's kind of easy. Yeah, look at all these things these non-Christians do. That's the way people live who rebel against God. It becomes confusing to your kids, to people into the church, and people in the world. When a person says, oh, yeah, no, I'm a Christian, but then does all these sinful things. That's confusing. And so Paul says if somebody calls himself a Christian, and if they're sexually immoral, or greedy, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. So Sexual immorality. Let's clarify what that is. It's sex with anybody that you are not married to. And God intends for one man to marry one woman one time. That's where sex is supposed to happen is in marriage. Now, there are some exceptions. We'll get to these in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And that is if you have two people who are unbelievers and one of them becomes a Christian and the other unbelieving spouse leaves, that person's free to remarry, then that's okay to be married again and to have sex in that relationship. Or if you're married and your spouse dies, you are free to remarry, and then it's okay in that situation too. Those are the options. Or in Matthew and also in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, if you're married and the person you're married to has an affair... And for that reason, you end up getting divorced. Then you're free to remarry. Like those are the reasons that, that a person would not just be married for life and that sex is not only in marriage. So that's sexual immorality. Greed, that's coveting. It's wanting what other people have. A person who just lives and always wants what somebody else has or an idolater, that's worshiping and serving anything over God. Or a reviler, that's an insulting or abusive person. Or, or a drunkard, a person who's just always intoxicated, don't associate, or a swindler. Somebody's out there robbing people. Have you ever, you ever heard somebody say, oh, I never do business with anybody from church because they're the most crooked people out there? We should never let somebody come to Foothills, be a part of Foothills, and then go out and rob and steal and defraud people and just go, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to, to Foothill Hills, and then everybody lowers their, their guard so this person can just take advantage of them. Man, anybody like that, don't associate with them. We don't damage the, re- the reputation of Christ by putting a stamp of approval on people who live in rebellion against God. And I would say, too, you know, Titus 1.16, talking about false teachers, it says, With their mouths they profess him, but by their deeds they deny him. And when people live like unbelievers we just say that's the way an unbeliever lives you're not a christian you know jesus said that same thing right in matthew 7 they'll say to me on that day lord lord didn't we do miracles in your name that's professing with the mouth and then i will say to them matthew 7 depart from me i never knew you they're not christians and that's titus 1:16, by their deeds They deny him. You know, all these things that are so controversial and so difficult and so challenging, just read your Bible. They're not in one place. They are everywhere. But often we just disregard things because they're uncomfortable. We don't like how it makes us feel. We don't like what it is telling us to do. So here's the thing that I want to just encourage all of us with. It is such an incredible blessing to obey God Um, I know of people who even now are really struggling with really hard things that God calls them to do. You want to know what's so encouraging is to have a conversation with somebody who's struggling. It is so hard. Everything in them says don't do it, and then they go do the right thing. And you never know how that's going to turn out, but it's so encouraging. Sometimes you don't see the fruit for a long time. Sometimes you see it right away. I've been so blessed recently by talking to some people or man, this is so hard, I don't, I don't want to do this, and then they do it, and then they call me back in a short period of time and say, it went so well. The nightmare I thought was going to happen didn't happen. That is so encouraging. And I just want to encourage all of you. Um, we know it's theologically true, right? Obey God, it's what's best. You know, it's, a, it's a matter of faith. God, I love you. I trust you. I'm going to do what you say. Live your life that way. It's an incredible blessing. And the other thing, too, is the more you do it, the more it will help other people who are struggling in the same way. So do it. So practice it. Often people don't ever experience how good it is to obey God because they don't ever obey God. Don't be that person. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for giving us your word. Lord, I know that uh, there are many people in this church family right now that are struggling with huge sin issues. There is sin that just seems like it has a grip on them, that is holding on to them. And, Lord, it, the thought of obedience can seem impossible. God, I pray that you would strengthen them, that you would give them the faith to trust you. Lord, that they would do what you say. And, Lord, for those who are struggling to address sin, they see people who are wandering from you. and They know you want them to talk to that person. And yet it's hard. It's fearful. God, it can be so overwhelming when we think we're going to suffer for doing the right thing. God, help people to put other people's needs first and to actually care about enough, enough about people to do those things that are hard. And Lord, for those who are struggling with sin, Lord, they, they want to repent. Uh, there are big issues in their life. They are really suffering, and, and it can be shameful. It can be hard to actually bring those things to the surface. God, I pray that we would be a church, that when we're struggling, we bring other people into it. We get the help from the body of Christ that you intend. Lord, help us not to wait until it's too late. And God, I also just thank you that in one sense, it is never too late. Um, to start doing the right thing. So help us as a church family. Help this church family to be a loving, gracious, merciful place, but that is a church that is willing to do the hard things um, for the sake of others in your name. Amen.